our attention now to God's Word, and we're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and would like to use one of ours, you'll find our text on page 737, 737. Daniel chapter 1. On August 24th, 410 AD, the Germanic Visigoths accomplished the unthinkable. They came down from the fields of northern Europe and laid siege to the city of Rome. It caused the rest of the entire empire to reel from the event. For 800 years, the Roman Empire had dominated the Western world, and the city of Rome in particular had not been overrun by its enemies. But now that had changed. Now the spiritual center of the empire, that place which had been, been known as the eternal city, had fallen to an enemy. The entire empire was in shock. What would become of the world? What would become of civilization as they knew it? It was at the fall of this great city, and so really the signaling of the fall of this great empire that the early church father Augustine penned his most significant theological work, a book called The City of God. And there Augustine wrote to the Christians of his day to console them at this devastating event that had rocked the continent. He wrote to encourage them not to look at what was going on around them, but to fix their gaze on what was ultimately the true eternal city. In fact, he describes two great societies, two cities, the city of man and the city of God. One is driven by a love of self that leads to contempt of God. The other leads to contempt of self driven by a love for God. Though the city of man takes many forms over many times, it always falls, Augustine said. Therefore, Christianity and Christians must not look to any society, any nation, anything in this life for security. Instead, they must look to God himself, who will in the end provide the only everlasting kingdom, a place of security, love, and holiness for his people. That message of that book is a timely message. Even today, as nation after nation rises to the heights of prosperity and power and influence until it eventually wanes, becoming just a mere shadow of its former glory or perhaps collapsing and falling apart altogether. And this trend did not begin with Rome. Rome was not the first great civilization to fall. In fact, as we begin this new series this morning through the book of Daniel, we will see this very situation facing the people of Israel. They are facing, in fact, the fall of their own nation. The falling of that nation and the city of Jerusalem itself, its capital, also caused them to lose the assurance of God's blessing on their life. In the end, those that had eyes to see, those that were able to perceive the reality of what was happening around them, those that truly loved God realized their downfall was by their own doing. Their deep abiding sin had caused their kingdom to fall, and now they longed for another. They longed for another kingdom that would never fail. They longed for an everlasting kingdom when sin would never again threaten their existence or their life with God. And this is the great theme of the book of Daniel. The anticipation, the need, the longing for this everlasting kingdom. It's the theme that we will see unfolding over the coming months. We will see how God's people lived in exile from their homeland, in a foreign land, waiting for that everlasting kingdom. We will see how God himself promises to be the guarantee of that coming everlasting kingdom that they longed for. 
And we will see how the promises that God made to them were ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's own Son. That He ultimately is both the builder and the ruler over an everlasting kingdom. Therefore, this book speaks to us today as God's people. As we worship the risen Christ, we too long for and await His everlasting kingdom. A place where we can dwell forever with God in peace without any threat of taint from sin. What we will see is that the promises made to Daniel and Israel in this book have already begun to be fulfilled in Christ. More than that, the promises still yet to be fulfilled by God Our promise is made to us. And in the faithfulness of God to send His Son, we have a sure hope that He will fulfill those remaining promises on the final day, providing the everlasting kingdom we long for. So this morning, as we begin this book, we begin at the beginning. We begin at chapter 1, and we want to see how a good Jewish boy gets carried off and is made to serve the king of his spiritual enemy, namely the kingdom of Babylon. It is through Daniel's eyes that we will see what it was like to face the impending exile of the people of God from their land, from their friends, from their loved ones, from their worship with God, from everything that they knew to be true, to sojourn in the land of Babylon. So follow along with me if you have your copy of God's Word as we begin in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Daniel. He writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, Use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king himself ate and of the wine that he himself drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. May God bless the reading of his word. As Daniel opens, we are reminded of the reality of the exile. Righteous and wicked alike in the nation are taken out of the nation because as a whole the nation had rebelled. They had sinned, and punishment for that sin came. Here, against the larger backdrop of the exile, the story narrows down into focus on Daniel and his friends. How did they survive? What happens to them as they are cut off from the people of God and from the place of God? This morning, before we get into what happens to Daniel and his friends specifically, it's important for us to kind of zoom back out and to fix firmly in our minds this background of the exile of God's people Israel into the pagan nations. Because it is only in facing the reality of that exile that in fact we will be able to face the reality of our own lives today. So as the people of God face the exile, we see they faced four things. First, they faced the reality of sin. They are facing the reality of sin. When you read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
in the Bible, you should be asking, how in the world did that happen? Why did that happen? After all, this is the capital city of the people of God. This is Israel. The very people that God promised that he and he alone would bring about through the offspring of Abraham. This is the people he preserved from extinction through famine by bringing them to Egypt. Then when in fear the Egyptians brought on the threat of genocide for God's people, he stepped in and redeemed them from that country and brought them to the land long ago promised to their father Abraham. God gave them his law. He established with them his covenant. He promised to them his everlasting love. That they would be his people and he would be their God. Yet it was in fact this very covenant that offered not just blessing, but also curses for God's people. If the people obeyed the Lord, if they followed after him, if they did not seek after other gods, then they would know his favor and even his blessing. Physically, they would prosper in the land. In fact, what we see is that uh, promises often applied to uh, all kinds of things, spiritually minded. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 is in fact very much rooted in the heart of Israel. If they disobeyed, their crops dried up. Their wells dried up. Their prosperity went away. But if they obeyed, they would know prosperity in the land. Their wells would be full. Their crops would be plentiful. They would have no need of fear from the enemies because God would protect them but if they failed then those things went away if they saw to other gods then god said let those gods protect you let those gods bless you because i will not now it's important to understand in all this god was not calling for perfection it sounds as if it's an impossible arrangement to keep isn't it if we know anything about the bible we've already established pages and pages and chapters ago the whole half of the book man is sinful isn't this a, isn't this a raw deal you're giving them god and the answer is no Because built into the covenant was the system of sacrifices that allowed them in their sin to come and find forgiveness in life with the Holy God. He knew they would not be able to keep the covenant in all of its fullness, so he allowed them to offer sacrifices for their sins that they might be able to be restored in their ongoing relationship with God. Both individually and corporately, their sin might be dealt with. When the people sinned, they need only repent, turn away from their sin towards the living God in faith, and they would be forgiven. But they refused to do that. Oh, they kept offering sacrifices, but it was not with repentant hearts. It was not with faith in the one true God. Instead, they loved their sin more than they loved God. Rather than see him as the source of their life and prosperity, they went after other gods, giving them worship and allegiance. They failed to obey God's laws and keep his commands, opening, openly defiling their relationship with him with unrepented hearts. Thus guilty of the sin of idolatry, which led to their open rebellion, all of this was evidenced in their lawlessness. Specifics. What did it look like? Well, later, Daniel in chapter 9, which we'll get to in uh, about nine weeks, he himself calls out to God in prayer and he reflects on the sins of the nation. What got them in the exile in the first place? Listen to what he says. He says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Because of the treachery that they have committed against you, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Again, Daniel says, if we would simply have repented, this wouldn't have happened. But we didn't. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Daniel pulls no punches. He himself has been carted off. He's, he's, not, he's not one of the, 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 the few of the poor who were completely unworthy of anything in the eyes of the Babylonians. They were left in the land to say, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, help yourselves, do whatever you want. And they're not looking and saying, well, we got, we're not in exile. Look at you guys. You guys stink. No, Daniel himself is in the midst of a pagan city, a sinful culture, and a sinful people who has been deported. And he looks at God and says, you are righteous. We are wicked. You have done this to us, but we deserved it. He pulls no punches. He is completely honest in the reality of sin in the life of the people of Israel that led them to this situation. And the sad truth is that we're no different. No, we did not receive God's law at Sinai. But in Romans, Paul says even every person alive has a basic law of right and wrong that God has put there. We are born with a basic moral compass, but in varying ways and in differing degrees, we all turn aside from that compass. We call evil good and good evil, and we say, no, thank you, God. I will go my own way. I will not follow in your way. Though you have established a law in my heart, I will refuse that law. I will deceive myself into believing that law is not good for me and do whatever I please. But just like with Israel, that rebellion has consequences. The reality of sin brings with it effects upon us and our lives. The consequences for Daniel and his people was exile. They had to face the reality of sin, but they also had to face, secondly, the consequences of sin. They had to face the consequences of sin. Sin isn't just something bad. It's not just something that we all do but don't worry about too much, though our culture treats sin that way. In fact, we don't even talk about sin anymore. And when's the last time you read a newspaper article or uh, listened, listened, even just watched a movie or television show and actually saw or heard the word sin used correctly? You don't. It's just not even in our vocabulary anymore. We talk about preferences and choices and lifestyle. And we justify what we do by convincing ourselves we have the right to live however we want, especially if it doesn't hurt anybody else. Perhaps the most popular expression of this mindset is found in Lady Gaga's smash hit, Born This Way. Consider some of the lyrics. It doesn't matter if you love him or capital H-I-M. Just put your paws up because you were born this way, baby. Then referencing later on what her mother told her as a young child. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, you were born this way. Lady Gaga reflects, I am beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, if you go on to see, if you've heard and know the rest of the song, you know, um, the whole thing turns on sexual identity. And basically she says, you can love and be with and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because God made you that way. 
And we may kind of snicker at Lady Gaga, but guess what? There are millions upon millions of young people in this country soaking that song up as their life's mantra. They're living by that as their new moral law. Yes, it's true, God made every one of us. But the image after which we have been created, namely his own divine image, we have twisted and corrupted and contorted into something so unrecognizable by the wickedness of our own hearts. God did not make us to be sinful beings. He made us to be a holy people who know him and love him and live in relationship with him. And we turn aside from that. So Lady Gaga can say, born this way, what she really means is born as a sinner who turns away from God. That's the way she was born, just like every one of us. And the Bible is clear that none of us can excuse our sin by by that argument, God made me this way. He didn't make us that way. Likewise, no one can presume that our sin will not have consequences. No, the Bible is clear from beginning to end, sin has consequences. And this was especially seen in the life of Israel. The exile wasn't an accident. God did not fall asleep at the cosmic wheel of the universe. The exile, the exile happened because of repeated, unrepentant sin. And what's incredible of all this, frankly, is not that they went in exile and, oh, how bad God is. It's the mercy that he showed them. The exile didn't just happen after a couple of years. It's not like you had Sinai and five years later the exile. You had hundreds of years of them slowly turning away, slowly rebelling, and God saying, don't do that. Don't go there. You, you, you're going after the false gods. Remember the covenant, and he would send prophets to warn them. And they would do amazing things. I mean, you know, they had this amazing battle between, between Baal and between, between Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, with Elijah and all these other prophets. And Elijah's God wins hands down. And Elijah says, decide who are you going to serve, the impotent Baal or the all-powerful Yahweh. And guess what? A small spiritual revival takes place. But it doesn't last long. It gets so much to the point that as the prophet Jeremiah is calling the people back on the very precipice of the exile, warning them what is about to come, the wicked king of Israel hears the prophetic word of judgment, doesn't like what he hears, and begins ripping it up and throwing it into the fire. And I love Jeremiah just tells Baruch his, his amenuensis, just, just get another scroll. It's God's word. It's not destroyed. Give it again, give it again, give it again. Because regardless of whether or not we like it, we can't stop it. Though they mocked the prophets, though they threw Jeremiah in a well and left him for dead because they didn't like what he had to say, it didn't matter. God had declared it would come and it was going to happen. Despite being merciful and patient and forgiving, eventually the judgment came. Notice what was involved in this judgment of exile. Verse 1. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, first of all, the people were cut off in the right worship of God. Now, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but remember, for Israel, part of the worship of God involved sacrifices of repentance that brought forgiveness of sins. You can't offer sacrifices, you don't get forgiveness, full stop. Because God said, this is the way you restore the relationship. So now you have, even have a few righteous people who are pulled off into exile with the rest of the land. They're going, how do we get back with God? There's no temple. 
the, the labor, the, 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 the holy shovel to dig the ash out of the pit, all of these things that went into the sacrifices have been carried off, and now they're in part of the storehouse treasury of a temple of a false god. How do we worship the Lord? In fact, some may be wondering, are the gods of the Babylonians real? Are they stronger than our God, the God of Israel? But notice what Daniel says in verse 2. It was the Lord who allowed this to happen. It's not as if Marduk and Baal and, and all these other false gods had victory over the Lord. No, he says, I'm allowing this to happen. In judgment for your sin, I am allowing this right worship to be cut off. They have spurned and defiled the Lord. They have broken the relationship with him, and therefore they have consequences. They're not only cut off from the right worship of God, they're also cut off from the covenant community. Look at verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Here are teenagers taken away, perhaps even as young as 14, Daniel and his friends, taken away from their parents and families and brought to serve the king of a foreign power. It was tragic and unbelievable and still yet better than they deserved. Because ultimately all sin, even our sin, is a sin against God himself, who being infinitely holy and glorious, the consequences of a sin against him must also be infinite in their application. Yet God didn't do that. God didn't just immediately consign them all to hell. He gave them better than they deserved. He was merciful even in judgment. The fullness had not yet fallen on them. And likewise, it has not fallen on us today. You know, when I was in high school, I had to read this sermon, uh, historical sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And first of all, as a junior taking American lit in high school, I was shocked they would even have something of the Bible in public school. But they had all kinds of the Bible because it was, uh, you know, American lit. And then you got the English lit, you had the King James Bible. Anyway, you read this, you read the story and the professor read it like a TV preacher at first. And, and it was just like nails on the chalkboard. You just thought, oh, you know about, about uh, humanity being like a spider on a thin web hanging over hell, ready to drop at any time. And you're just like, oh boy. But then he said, you know, that's not how Edwards was. And then he composed himself, and he held the book out before him, and he began to read with passion and with pleading in his voice. And you suddenly realized the tone of the message is not, God is going to get you. The tone of the message, the verse that he quotes from Deuteronomy is this, your foot has not yet slipped into judgment. God is merciful, and the wrath, the fullness of it that you deserve, He is holding back, giving you time and loving patience that you might repent and turn from your sins and not experience the judgment you deserve. The same thing with Israel. The thought of the exile seems, seems terrible to us, and it was, but it wasn't what they deserved in its fullness. The people had sinned and they suffered its consequences, but even in exile, they would continue to be tempted to sin even more. This is the third thing that the people faced as they went into exile. They were facing the temptation to sin. They were facing the temptation to sin. This week I was reading about the small country of Latvia. It's one of these tiny Eastern European countries you don't think much about, but its history is tragic. 
despite, despite experiencing a brief time of independence between the two world wars, this country was annexed by Russia in 1940. And for the next 51 years until they achieved independence, they suffered under foreign rule, where enemies of their country terrorized the people, trying everything they possibly could to stamp out anything that reeked of Latvian culture. From the food, to the language, to, to the lifestyle, the Soviet Empire tried to completely obliterate the Latvians and bring them into being Russian Soviets. Any potential leader was executed or exiled to a distant part of the empire. They went to the gulags. More than that, the church itself suffered brutally under this time. And Latvia's experience wasn't far off that of the ancient Israels either. These Jews... These youths that were brought in, they were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king, we read in verse 5, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Here was the strategy of the Babylonians. Eliminate the Israelite culture from the Israelites. Take everything that said Israelite about them and get rid of it. Eliminate their language, their custom, their religion. Just as in Latvia, potential leaders were exported to the courts of Babylon, where they would be retrained to live and think as Babylonians and pose no future threat to them. No uprising, no rebellion. These aren't Israelites, they are Babylonians who serve us and our gods now. It begins with indoctrination. They were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. That may not seem like a big deal. But we already have people that we know who are educated. They're ready to learn. And now they're saying, read this. Learn this new language and read it in this new language. And what kind of things were it? What what would it have been? It would have been been like the news. Okay, They're not saying, you know, read the Babylonian times so you know what's going on. No, it would have been a desire to completely remap the way they thought and saw the world. Not that the eyes of Yahweh who created all things and gloriously called them by his electing love to be his people. No, it was through the false gods and how they had designs for the world. They were trying to teach them to think like Babylonians. It's not... It's not that they wanted them just to get to know them. They wanted them to become them, to imprint on these young Israelites the Babylonian worldview. More than that, though, they now give them food from the table of the king. Now, that seems nice, doesn't it? You treat the exiles well. We've pulled these people out of their homeland. Let's be nice to them. No, in truth, the answer is no. It's not nice. By giving them the rich food of the court, by putting them in positions of authority and privilege, they were training them to be dependent upon the king of Babylon. They were trying to make them believe it was him and the pagan gods that they worshipped to which they owed everything. So when they're used to this lifestyle of poshness, of getting everything they want, whenever they want, of wielding authority, they said, oh, now, who, now who is responsible for all this? What would they say? Not Yahweh put us in this position of authority. They would say, well, you, O king, and the Babylonian gods you serve. Final dignity comes in having their names changed. Why is this so important? Because your name is who you are. I mean, for, for good or for ill, what you're named is, is so closely associated with you for the rest of your life. To have that, anybody that changes their name means they want to start over. It means they want to erase their past and begin life anew. And it's one thing if you choose to do that, it's quite another when it is forcibly done to you. All of these names reflect Israelite trust in the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord. But now their new names invoke the gods of the Babylonians. 
Daniel's name means God is my judge. The Babylonians now call him Belteshazzar. May the wife of our God Baal protect the king. First of all, what guy wants a name that involves the wife of a false god? I don't know. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh is gracious, was renamed Shadrach. I am fearful of Aku, the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, who is like God, becomes Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, is now called Abednego, servant of Nabu, the shining one. The temptation for the people that they faced going into exile was that they would lose their identity as God's covenant people. Isn't it a shame that even we today, we've kind of bought into the Babylonian ploy? I mean, I mean, if, I, if, I, if you're like me, I did not grow up calling Daniel. I called him Daniel because the book's named after him. But I didn't call Hananiah Hananiah. I was called to call him Shadrach. I didn't call Mishael Mishael. I was called to call him Meshach. I didn't call Azariah Azariah. I was called to call him Abednego. We've bought the lie even in how we read the Bible. They're not Babylonians. They're Israelites. God's promised people. And yet, we ourselves face the same temptation that they faced back then to lose our identity as God's people. They were immersed in a foreign culture that appeared superior to their own in every way, and the temptation was to continue the sinful descent of the nation and completely forget God and His ways, to become in every way Babylonians, not just in name, but in thought, word, and deed. And today, today it is the same for us, but it's worse I'll say that we have it. We have a far more difficult challenge than they did today because the temptation is far more subtle. We grow up in Babylon, not in Israel. We are not born into the people of God. We are born into a pagan, sinful culture, and it has infiltrated our thinking and our feeling and our loving and our living far more than we can ever imagine. And it's only until the gospel of God's grace comes in and opens our eyes, we're even able to see how much we have been shaped by the influences around us. But now here's the temptation. Do we actively wage war against the cultural imprint being molded into what is going on around us? Or do we press out and fight and break the mold, seeking after God, allowing Him to make us after His holy divine image? That's the temptation we face. Are we turned into sinful cultural clones robotically going along with everybody else and all the fads and styles and what's popular, or do we allow God to remap our brain to the reality of life from his perspective, the one who made it, the one who sustains it, the one who guides it, and the one who will bring it to its fulfillment? Far too often we sit back and relax and we go along with what's going on around us when we should be, out of love for God, living in defiance of the world. This brings us to the last thing we want to see this morning. As the people face exile, they're not only facing the reality of sin, the consequences of sin, the temptation to continue to sin, they also face the solution to sin. They are facing the solution to sin. Israel had come to terms with the devastating results of her sin, but there is still hope. Even as he promised judgment, God also promised salvation. He promised that he would not cut off his people forever, but would bring them back out of the exile and even send a Messiah, an anointed Savior, who would redeem their lives and establish his everlasting kingdom. Thus, the solution to their sin in every way was God himself. Get that. If you don't hear anything else, get that today. The solution to sin in every way, whether it's the reality or the consequences of the continuing temptation, the solution to sin is God himself. 
We see this in three ways. First of all, we see the God who forgives the penalty of sin. The God who forgives the penalty of sin. Sometimes the news is just depressing. And then sometimes you get a story like I read this week. Last Thursday, Corey Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, came home on a Thursday night to see his neighbor's house on fire. Flanked by two men in his security detail, he ran to the front door and he heard his neighbor screaming in the back. He started to go into this burning building and his security detail grabbed him and said, you're the mayor, you can't go in there. And he yelled, she's going to die, she's going to die, let me go, I've got to go in there. And they let him go. And he went in. Through smoke and flames, he followed her screams until he came to the back bedroom where he picked her up over his shoulder in a fireman's carry. Could not get back out the front door and so he had to literally leap through flames in the kitchen to get them out of the back. Though suffering from smoke and inhalation and mild burns, both were saved. Loved ones, here is a picture of a more important leader who rescues countless billions from an even worse fire. In this mayor is the picture of a man who, because of his love for sinners, humbled himself and rescued sinners by taking the consequences of their own sin upon himself. Here is a picture of the man, Jesus Christ, who came in fulfillment of those promises to the Messiah. When he came, he died under the curse of God's wrath. He endured the flames for us final blow which Israel deserved, Jesus took upon himself so that they might experience forgiveness in life, even eternal life with God. And he did all this by dying on a hill on a cross outside Jerusalem. And for those that look to him in faith, even today God will forgive us the penalty of our sin. More than that, there is a God who restores us from the consequences of sin. There's a God who restores us from the consequences of sin. God will not only bring back faithful Israelites from the exile and restore them to the land one day, but he also promises something better. Not just physical blessings restored in a small plot of land in western Palestine. No, he promises them a new world filled with joy and peace because he himself is at its center. God promised Israel then and he promises the church today a completely new heaven and a new earth where the destructive consequences of sin will be felt no more and never threatened to enjoy life in the immediate presence of God in all his glory. There is a God who restores us from the consequences of our sin. And there's finally a God who strengthens us in the fight against sin. We aren't at that new creation yet. We still live in a culture consumed with sin and rebellion against God and we are called to fight against it. But how do we fight? How do we fight? We fight by relying on God. He is the one who helps us fight. He is the one who helps us resist the conforming of our minds and our hearts to the ways of the world by transforming us from the inside out to reflect His glory and His ways. How do we do that? We do that by looking to, again and again and again, by looking to the promised Messiah that He sent, namely Jesus Christ. We look to Him who made an end of all our sin. We look to Him whom He poured out His love and His mercy on undeserving sinners. We look to him as the one who set the example for us, who though pushing through pain and fear suffered for righteousness sake. Therefore the author of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, every believing saint of the Old Testament standing gloriously in heaven, since we are surrounded by this witnesses to God's glory and the goodness that he is despite sin and suffering, let us lay aside every weight in sin which so easily clings to us and let us run, not walk, not trot, not crawl, but run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the 
founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. This morning, loved ones, we prepare for this book by remembering the promise of an everlasting God and an everlasting kingdom. Look to Christ because it is all possible through Him. We should forsake our sin and our past and our culture and fight the fight of faith, pressing forward, looking to Jesus, that we might find forgiveness and life forever with God. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that You have triumphed over every enemy we could possibly have in this life. There is nothing you have not done to make it possible to give us the assurance that we have life with you. Oh God, help us not to refuse. Help us not to love our sin more than you. Help us not to let our hearts grow cold and defiant towards you. God, humble us. Break us, God. Help us to see our great need of your loving mercy, which you so readily offer to sinners. And God, help us to look to Christ, the one that brings that mercy into our lives, so that we will not go along with this world, we will not become Babylonians in the 21st century, but we will become and remain and grow up into be the perfect people of God that you desire us to be. God, help us to do all of this by looking to the everlasting king who reigns over an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that has even now been broken into this world and is bringing to an end this old sinful creation. God, do this, we pray, because we desperately need it, because you have promised good for your people that your name might be glorified. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.